This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week of Gold and Hubris, tracing the origins of Rumpelstiltskin. So it is time for another Fairy Tales in Focus episode. And we actually have a surprisingly ancient one for you for this week. Yeah, on the surface, this is a tale of hubris, of being comparatively powerless in a male-dominated world, and of taking some of that power back. However, beneath that entertaining exterior lurks themes of child sacrifice, desperate survival, and seduction. We are talking, of course, of Rumpelstiltskin, a popular fairy tale which seems to have recent beginnings by fairy tale standards. Yeah. Um, this is a story that's usually a big hit with children. It's creepy, but not too scary. Everything turns out right in the end, but the risk is real throughout. Then again, scratch that surface, and there are themes of life, death, and survival that will make Lord of the Flies look kind of tame. Yeah. And we'll get into all of that. But first, a recap for anyone who hasn't listened to one of our Fairy Tales in Focus episodes before. Yeah, so a brief overview of fairy tales. Um, fairy tales, morality tales, fables, myths and legends all get jumbled together. It's quite difficult to separate them entirely because these sorts of stories exist in almost every culture in the world. And what's a fairy tale in one place may be a legend or a myth or a piece of history even in another. Yeah. So broadly speaking, legends and epics contain a historical element and are considered to have happened in full or in part. Yeah. Whereas uh, morality tales, fables and parables are concerned with delivering a message, which is usually religious or philosophical. Yeah. Then you have fairy tales, which contain fantasy creatures such as... Uh, dwarves, elves, gnomes, mermaids, dragons, etc. Um, and do not contain more than superficial references to religion, actual places, historical people or events. Uh, they happened once upon a time or photo long ago. Yeah, some folklorists, prefer, <laughs> some folklorists prefer the term Martian, which is Wondertale. Yes. Now, while we're familiar with fairy tales as they have been preserved, written down, and while this can make it tricky to get at the roots because the sort of people who had access to writing and publishing were almost exclusively men, or at least very rich, uh, fairy tales were almost certainly stories told orally for thousands of years before that, and were most likely handed from mother to daughter or grandmother to granddaughter. Um, another name for them is spinning tales after all, and, and of course we start to get into the realm of folk tales as well. Yeah. So the nature of a story is to shapeshift to survive, and fairy tales have been shapeshifting for a very long time. Yes. So, with that in mind, let's get into Rumpelstiltskin, which sounds really odd when I said that. Really bad, it's, yeah. it's like we're going to climb inside of him, <laughs> like he's some kind of skin suit. Okay, um, so Rumpelstiltskin in I history. Think we should just stop now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Rumpelstiltskin is classified in the the Arn Thompson Ufa Folk Index as a number five hundred. The name of the helper. 
with the earliest written edition of the oral tale is Giambattista Basile's The Seven Bits of Bacon Rind in 1634 to 1636, which was published in his collection Pentamera. Now, the form of the story most people are familiar with today is, unsurprisingly, Rumpelstiltskin by the Brothers Grimm, which is a mashup of four separate versions of the story and appeared in Kinder und Hauschmarschen in 1812, with a gorier version turning up in the 1836 edition. Yeah, most unusually, the... the, the um the editors and publishers came back with, you know what, this story isn't quite gory enough, rather than, oh, you guys need to ring it <laughs> yeah. because we cannot publish that. <laughs> anyway, the basic plot of Rumpelstiltskin is much, much older. 4,000 years old, to be exact, as, as exact as it's possible to be. <laughs> um, now, if that hasn't blown your mind yet, consider that this predates Homer and would be contemporary with the earliest tales in the epic of Gilgamesh. So, um, how do we, because of course we cannot admit to the fact that Jules was there 4,000 years ago. Um, Stop Stop outing me. (laughs) So how do we know this? Well, the simple answer is pi. (laughs) Um, Yeah, more specifically, a recent intensive study of thousands of variants of the most beloved fairy tales has revealed their origins to be much more ancient than previously thought. Um, This has been done through what I personally find absolutely fascinating, a study of Proto-Indo-European and the dialects when when they split. Um, Mm -hmm. And what they've basically done is they've had anthropologists using techniques that are commonly only used in evolutionary biology, um, Mm -hmm. which has led to several fascinating peer-reviewed papers. They're not light reading at all. They're the sort of things I would take to bed to read because I'm a massive, massive nerd, as everybody knows. Um, (laughs) You might really find them interesting and enjoy them, in which case they are absolutely, you can read most of them for free on the internet. So absolutely download the PDFs, read, comment, think, etc. Um, But just to summarise, basically, um, Proto-Indo-European is supposedly kind of the root of of all Indo and Indo-Asian, Indo-European type languages. And we can see this in many, I mean, once you know a couple of different languages, you'll notice that there are weird things that cross over. like if I asked Madeleine for the, the word for knee in French, for example, which I believe is... Genoux. Genoux. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, in Irish, it's glun, which is different, but it's close enough that you think, hmm, that's a bit odd that you should have both gone from what seems to be a similar root word there. You know, Irish yeah. is like 3,000 years old itself. So there's various other bits and pieces and by tracing specific words and specific terms back to as far as uh, as close as we can get to the original language we can work out when certain dialogues split off Um, and that is unsurprisingly has a lot to do with when people migrated and Mm. you know you've got continental drift meaning that that languages changed that the vowels changed that one language started to morph into something that was that bore little resemblance to what was originally spoken. Um, mm. We don't really have like a Rosetta Stone, if you like, of Proto-Indo-European because it predates written language. 
Yeah. So you go looking for it in the roots of the original ancient versions of the languages that we speak today, and yet there is still stuff to find. So when they look at the original oral tales, which were written down, and they sort of try and trace them back further to specific regions, they can see from the drift in these original Proto-Indo-European dialects um, kind of roughly how old they are, because there's always specific words that turn up in these things, if you're yeah. from an accurate oral tale, that just don't really show up anywhere else. Um, but we've already said, you know, things like Cinderella are at least 2,000 years old, which, you know, is already mind-boggling. But uh, yeah. and I think they found one. There was one called The Smith and the Devil. That's what we call it now. Uh, but if you trace it back, its origins are the Bronze Age. Yeah, it's, damn. It's, it's absolutely <laughs> insane. It's so fascinating. But anyway, I thought Rumpelstiltskin was a comparatively recent fairy tale. Turns out I was out by about 3,400 years. So there you go. Yeah. In addition to this, there is actually a possible earlier reference to the story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's in Antiquities by Dionysius of Halicarnassus, um, which is always fun to say. <laughs> Again, anything that's written sort of poetic history or histories of the first century common era, you have to take with a tiny grain of salt, except that there is actually a fair bit of accurate stuff in there as well. It's kind of like not taking the whole text at face value. Yeah. So at this point, you might be going, okay, well, that's old. So why has it endured so long? Um, and the answer is that as with all long lived fairy tales, it's the themes. It's always the themes, baby. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just go over the basic plot. So it begins with a miller who boasts that his beautiful daughter is so skilled and clever that she could spin straw into gold. Yeah. Now, if you're already going, yeah, my Greek mythology alarm bells are ringing, you're not <laughs> wrong. Um, basically, this boast reaches the ears of the king, who takes the girl and imprisons her in a room full of gold. Ro sorry, a room full of straw, otherwise her task would have been way too easy. Yeah, I was going to say, that's very easy. It's like, spin this into gold, gold. okay? <laughs> no, um, imprisons her in a room full of straw. You know, as you do if you're king, you just take a hapless girl and lock her up in a room full of straw. Uh, telling her that if she does not turn every single piece of the straw into gold in a single night, he will execute her. So, you know, primo motivation right there. Yeah. Now, the hapless Miller's daughter, who has never considered herself clever or skilled, obviously despairs. It is an impossible task. She is going to die. Then, a strange imp-like man appears in the room and asks her why she's crying. And she explains her dilemma, and he agrees to spin the straw into gold while she sleeps, in return for her necklace of glass beads. Small caveat is that she has these these pieces of jewellery, but they're not just pieces of jewellery. They, I believe, they were gifts from her mother. Yeah. Um, who has passed away so yeah, they're not they're not actually worth much in their own right but because you know it's a sentimental value set type thing so they have value for that very reason yeah Madeline has pointed out anyway the king is surprised and delighted to see the room filled with gold the following morning but his greed is not appeased he imprisons the girl in a second larger room also full of straw telling her that if she wants to live she will spin that straw into gold too so once again, the imp man appears and this time he agrees to spin the straw into gold in exchange for a ring that she is fond of that again belonged to her mother. 
the king once more sees the second room full of gold and is greedier than ever. He imprisons the girl in a third, even larger room, stuffed with straw, and says that if she completes that, he will marry her. If she fails, she will die. Yeah, I mean, like... Because <laughs> he's obviously real husband material, right? Now. Yeah, he really is. I'm also just amazed by his these large rooms that he's just got filled with straw. I mean, I imagine he had them filled with straw, but I like to imagine he just happened to have rooms <laughs> full of straw just for the fun of it. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> So this time when the imp appears, the girl doesn't have anything left to offer. So the imp says that he will spin the straw in return for her firstborn child, which the desperate girl promises him because what else can she do? Yeah. Uh, the king is well pleased with a third room full of gold and he keeps his promise and marries the miller's daughter. Time passes and not long after the miller's daughter gives birth to a son. Hooray! Except the imp then turns up and demands the child, but the miller's daughter cannot bear to part with her child and offers him anything else. The imp has no interest in her wealth, unsurprising since he can spin straw into gold. The girl begs and finally the imp concedes that he will release her from her promise if she can guess his name within three days. Now she tries hundreds of names, but the imp just laughs at every single one of them. On the third day, she goes out somewhat desperately into the woods and the sound of singing draws her attention. Spying from a thicket, she sees the strange imp-like man dancing around a fire and singing a mocking rhyme that includes his name. <laughs> As you do. In some versions, you will see that it's a servant instead rather than her, but it doesn't, yeah, the change that, doesn't really late, matter. That's a later addition. Yeah. But we'll get into why in a moment. Yeah. So when the imp returns that night, the miller's daughter names him Rubblestiltskin um, and is released from the promise. The imp, depending on the version told, is banished by his name and runs away, or he stamps his foot so hard it sinks into the ground up to his hip. He then grabs his left foot to yank himself free and tears himself apart. Nice. <laughs> yes, thank you, Brothers Grimm, for that last one. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, that is the basic plot. And before we go on and have a look at some versions, um, do, we, we obviously have our own thoughts and, and reactions to this story. We'll get into the themes after we've gone through some of the versions. Some of the versions. Oh God, <laughs> this is really getting that. grim. Really First that. the skin suit, and now the virgins. <laughs> We're full on horror mode. Yep. Weirdly, this is a fairy tale that's adapted really well to horror films, strangely enough. There's been several yeah. of them. Anyway, <laughs> back to our thoughts on the story. I bo was both fascinated and horrified by this story as a child. I hated the fact that they sketched over, certainly in the, the versions of the story I was exposed to, the fact that the girl had no say whatsoever in who she was going to get married to. It's like the idea that he was a king was enough. She'll be happy if she marries a king, you know, because yeah. she's a miller's daughter, so... It's like, never mind the fact that no one asks her at any point what she wants to do, and he threatens her life. It's like, even as a small child, I was kind of like, I don't think this is a good grounds for a happy marriage. Yeah, it, it, it really just doesn't seem like... And that's the thing, is that she really is just the victim the whole way throughout, just pushed around by these men as well. You know, her father is the one who made the boast, not her. And she gets punished throughout the whole thing. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's just, it's exactly the same as, um, you know, uh, God, 
Cassiopeia boasting about her daughter Andromeda's beauty and Andromeda being the one who gets fed to the sea monster. Yeah. That sort of thing. It's like, can everyone around me just shut the fuck up and leave me alone? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> chill. All of you chill. <laughs> yeah, so in a lot of ways, there's lots there to delight a child. The idea that you can overcome something by making bargains, maybe. Hmm. Well, that's not necessarily a great message. There is something about sort of like having having the wit to recognise a resource hmm. um, that that is appealing to a child. But at the same time, the rest of it is just kind of like this is awful. Uh, we're going to yeah. get into why it's it's told that way a bit later. Yeah. Um, so first, yeah, let's look at through some through some of the versions, and then let's we'll we'll concentrate in on the themes. So earlier we mentioned the seven bits of bacon rind. Yeah, this is Gian Battista Basilei from Pentamerone in 1634-ish. We don't know exactly when it was published. Um, the seven bits of bacon rind is very typical Basilei type fiction. Basilei writes the dirty, crude, um, scatologically funny versions of fairy tales that we know and love. Uh, he was yeah. the one who wrote in Rapunzel that Rapunzel was bored in the tower and literally deliberately invited the prince up for some sex because she was so bored. Yeah. Um, he tends to allow his female characters to have agency as well, while at the same time sort of tongue-in-cheek wagging a finger as if to say, but listen, all you maidens, fair, this is bad behaviour. We, <laughs> we don't indulge in it kind of thing. Yeah. And yet, all the time, you get the impression that Basilei's kind of like, you go, girl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, well, that's naughty, you know? <laughs> anyway. Yes, that's naughty. <laughs> yeah, kind of almost a carry-on-esque way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you probably find he was, like, influenced by Chaucer. Anyway, moving on. Um, the Seven Bits of Bacon Rind is a, a amusing story in a very typical Basilei fiction, fashion, rather. Um, there is a an old beggar woman, and she manages to get scrape together enough food by you know taking laundry, doing a bit of spinning, and also by begging for it. Uh, one day she kind of hits what she considers the jackpot and is given seven pieces of pork rind with some of the fat still attached. She takes it home to her daughter and tells her daughter to continue to start cooking them up while she goes and gets a handful of greens to cook with them so that they can have a complete meal. Hmm. When the girl starts cooking the bacon rind, it smells so good. I mean, think about bacon cooking. Yeah. Um, it smells so good that she can't wait for her mother to return, and she eats all seven bits of bacon rind. Oh, no! <laughs> her mother comes back and is furious, and she might be an old woman, but she grabs her daughter by the hair and starts beating the shit out of her with a broom. Yeesh. A merchant is passing by, and he stops... At, at the sight of this because so the, the beating is so vicious and asks the old woman what business she has to be beating her daughter and the old woman is a bit sort of taken aback and she said well my daughter has filled seven spindles today with her work despite the fact that working so hard is bad for her and the miller's like not sorry not the miller the merchant's like well if, if she's that industrious then you know, if you don't want her I'll take her so he takes her home <laughs> and marries her and then he gets 20 bales of flax and puts it in a room and he says to her, 
I'm going away, it's going to take me about 20 days, um, then I'll be back. And obviously, I know you're a woman of great industry, I expect to see, you know, <laughs> I expect to see seven bales of flax all spun into, sorry, 20, ba 20 bales of flax all spun into, uh, you know, 20 skeins. And th this doesn't actually trouble the old woman's daughter all that much. She just lounges around and she amuses herself and she eats lots of food and she doesn't really do any work. <laughs> and then a couple of days before her husband's due to return, she has that, oh shit, I haven't done my homework. <laughs> so many of us are familiar with. And she's like, I have nothing to show for it. He's going to be really, really angry with me. Um, so does she start spinning? Does she fuck? No, she finds a way to go to the window and start squirting water at people passing by that makes them angry and want to fight each other. And she does this so much that in the end, three fairies who happen to have witnessed the whole thing are so amused that they come in and do all her spinning for her. <laughs> oh my God. They consider it a fair exchange because they've never seen anything so funny as all these humans being made to fight each other over these squirts of water. Anyway, her husband gets home and finds his wife in bed. He finds 20 skeins of, of well-spun flax, etc. But his wife is in bed, you know, barely able to open her eyes. And she, she eventually ventures the opinion that, you know, the spinning really took it out of her and she might have made her very ill and he might be a widower a lot sooner than he expected. At which point he then forbids her to ever work at spinning ever again. <laughs> <laughs> and so she lives very comfortably after that, eating whatever she likes. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that's one version of it. So the next one um, is uh, Rick den Ridon by uh, Madame uh, Lertier, yeah. I think that's how it is, yeah, um, from 1705. Yeah, uh, I believe this is from Cabernet de Fille, but I could be wrong, I believe that is the collection. Anyway, yeah. this is very similar in some ways to the Seven Bits of Bacon Rind, um, except that the it's kind of bogged down by this description of the daughter being beautiful and virtuous and perfect and clearly not very clever. Right. Um, <laughs> She's not actually trying to outwit anyone. She's not a lazy glutton like the first one. She's just not very good at spinning and her mother's abusive and beats her when she isn't fast enough. Right. Um, and the little man who turns up says, well, look, I can help you. Your, you know, your, your mother's locked you up with all this, <laughs> with all this spinning to do. I'll do the spinning for you, or rather I will give you this magic wand that will allow you to spin everything as if by magic. Um, and as if, as if by magic, I think it is just magic, <laughs> little man. <laughs> my name is Rigdon Macdon, and uh, he, as long as you remember my name, then the debt between us will be erased once you have completed the three tasks or whatever. Um, so she does the spinning and her mother's surprised and her mother sets her even more spinning to do and again she uses the magic wand and you know it follows the general three three tasks path and by this point her fame is spread as her being one of the finest spinners in the kingdom and the prince marries her um, and she's still burdened with this magic wand which you'd think wouldn't be too bad but she knows that while she holds the magic wand Rigdon Nigdon can, can 
take anything he wants um, in payment. And it's not until she gives the magic wand back and t- calls him by his name that she can banish him. Well, yeah. unfortunately, she's not very clever and she can't remember his bloody name. <laughs> right. So she's in a panic. She knows he's going to come to her at the end of a year and a day and he could demand absolutely anything from her. And then one day her husband happens to, comes home and said he was riding in the forest and he happened to see the strangest thing of this strange little demonic man dancing around a fire, a fire and saying that he was soon to outwit someone for his name was rigged in, rigged on. And she's like, oh, that's the name. <laughs> <laughs> she returns the wand and they live a most healthy, virtuous marriage and happy life. Oh... gotta love some good good old coincidence yes okay uh we are now going to sort of jump away from sort of europe (laughs) (laughs) because it is not just in europe that this story is told um so i think that it's joad joadane yeah, that's how I've been saying it. I could yeah. be wrong, but... It's, it's he who talks too much, yeah. which is an Arabic version. Yeah, I kind of like this. I could not find a... F- um, I don't speak Arabic, and I definitely don't read it. Um, I could not find a full translation. I need to have a proper look. But basically, in this story, it's not an imp or, you know, a little... What's clearly a fairy. It is, in mm. fact, a djinn. Yeah. And the young woman is... I think she might actually be named in this. I could be wrong. But very rare is that is it the heroine is named, but I think she could be named. Um, and it follows a very similar pattern, except that um, instead of spinning, she's doing some other type of, I think it's embroidery or something like that. Mm-hmm. And again, the bargain is made, you know, I'll take your firstborn child, etc., etc. Um unless you can guess my name and it, it, it's it is part of arabic myth that if you have the jinn's name you can then banish him so again very like our western fairies yeah um um she was only one of the only people to have ever seen this jinn's face as well so it kind of marked her um and once again you have the same she creeps out into the desert and again sort of overhears the jinn she overhears his name and it is very, very similar to Rumpelstiltskin, except that the djinn, I think, is going to take her as well as her child. Right. If I recall. So, you know, the, the added sort of diciness of all that in there as well. Yes. <laughs> uh, but the name of the djinn, is strange enough, is Joadane, which is he who talks too much because, you know, he can't keep, he can't keep his name to himself. He's got to gloat. <laughs> yep, he really does. <laughs> Okay, um, we then have the use of magic language, which is actually Mongolian. Yeah, this is a different one. This is kind of Rumpelstiltskin inside out. Um, You have a great Khan, and his son is to be educated. And because he's so fond of his minister and his minister's eldest son, he sends the eldest son of his minister away with his son to be educated. There's too many sons in that sentence, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, And they go away and they learn all manner of arts, both mundane and esoteric, and they spend 12 years of their study. But at every single thing, the prince outshines the minister's son, his best friend, and this gnawing kernel of envy sort of coalesces within the minister's son. 
at the end of 12 years, they're riding their way back and something happens. Um, in some versions, a wolf attacks and the prince tells the wolf to back down using the magical language. Um, and in others, it, it's some other calamity that befalls them. Either way, the prince saves them. Instead of being grateful, his best friend is again just consumed with envy. So when they're riding through some wooded land, he asks the prince to look ahead for him, for he, his prince has better eyesight, and then creeps up behind him and cuts his throat. And that leaves him, to, leaves him to fall in the forest floor. And then he rides back, uh, sorry, before the prince dies, the prince says one single word. He, uh, he says, Abarashika, which the minister has no idea what that means. But, you know, he rides back to his own father and the Khan to tell the terrible news that the prince was lost, unfortunately, in the forest, um, attacked by wild beasts and driven into a river, etc., etc. And the Khan says, did my son speak no word before he died? And the minister's son says, yes, he said, Abarashika. And nobody knows what it means. And the Khan is consumed with trying to find out what this one single word means. Um, and first off, he offers great rewards to all of his great intellectuals and scholars. And then when they're still utterly baffled, he says, well, I'm giving you three days and then I'm going to put all 1,000 of you to death. It's a great way of uh, great, dealing great with your problems. <laughs> there. And while the, all the 1,000 scholars are all sort of weeping and wailing because they're going to die because they don't know what the meaning of the word is, one of the younger scholars who isn't going to die because he's not very important, he hasn't progressed far in his studies, um, slips out and dis goes, for a little, goes for a little wander on the steps and he stops under a tree and above them a crow lights on the branch and starts talking to its chicks in the nest and it's saying tomorrow we shall have a great feast and the chicks are like oh how is that mother and the mother crow says well tomorrow the great khan will put one thousand men to death and we shall feast for many days so typical bloodthirsty twat corbys type shit yep um and the one of the, the smallest chicks says but why should he kill so many of his own men and the mother crow says, well, it's because he has many, many great scholars and all of them are too stupid to understand the meaning of the word Arabashika. And it turns out that the crow knows the meaning of the word and it tells it to the chicks. And the meaning is, this my bosom friend hath enticed me into a thick grove and there, wounding me with a sharp knife, hath taken away my life and is even now preparing to cut off my head. That is such a very specific word. <laughs> yep, that was the meaning contained within the magical language or word Arabashika. Anyway, the young scholar runs back, um, comes across the weeping and wailing older scholars and says, I know, the me I know the meaning of the word. And then, unfortunately, that's when the Khan's men turn up and escorts all these men in. Um, and the young scholar sort of saves them all by saying, this is what the word means. And the Khan believes him, so all the scholars get rewarded instead of beheaded, which they're pleased about, but they're sworn to secrecy. And then the minister and his son are brought in, and the Khan says, I want you to take me to where my son's body is, is laying in the forest. And he goes there and he raises a tomb over his son, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then he turns around and has both his minister and the minister's son executed for treason. <laughs> Oof. 
kind of feel sorry for the minister. <laughs> it's just like, well, you, I think it's the whole sort of like you're responsible for your son, mate. But yeah, yeah. it's not great. Um, but what's interesting is, yes, it's a single word and it has a great deal of meaning um, in the same yeah. way that, you know, Rumpelstiltskin does, which we'll get into in a moment. And it's um, interesting to me that it, inside out you start with the word and have to attain the meaning, whereas in all the other tales you have the meaning and you have to attain the word. Yeah, absolutely. So from then we we get the the story that we're familiar with, which is obviously the Brothers Grimm version, uh, Rumpelstiltskin, in 1812. Um, but of course it doesn't end there and we have the uh whoopity story uh by robert chambers in 1826 because scotland had to had to have their version as well <laughs> absolutely um yeah basically this is a woman who's this is a woman whose husband went to the fair and never returned she was mm. left alone with her baby son owning only a big sow and the sow was about to give birth uh, she obviously hoped for a good litter, but one day she went into the pen and found the sow dying, which would have meant the ruin of her and her baby son. So she's distraught, but a passing fairy woman asked what she would give her if she could cure the sow, and the woman promised her anything she liked. So the fairy woman saved the sow and then demanded the baby. Naturally. Naturally. And she would not listen to any pleas, um, although she was forced to admit to the woman that under the laws of fairy, she had to wait three days before she could take the child, um, and that she, but that she could only be stopped by the woman calling her by her true name. So the first day, the woman was lost in weeping and was distraught at the thought of losing her child. The second day, she went for a walk, um, and in the forest, she found a small sort of like little glen where a fairy woman was spinning and singing that her name was Whoopity Story. Um, so when the fairy came the next day, the woman pleaded with her to take the sow instead of the baby, and the fairy woman refused. So she then pleaded the fairy to take herself as a servant instead of her son. And the fairy said, well, what on earth would I do with a woman like you? And the woman says she knew that she is unworthy to even tie the shoestrings for Whoopity Story. Um, and the fairy woman went screeching away. <laughs> <laughs> Should have taken the sow. And then finally, uh, we have Joseph Jacobs' um, 1890 edition, which is um, Tom Tip Tot. Yeah, this is very much, I mean, Joseph Jacobs and a couple of others um, largely take the blueprint of the book the Brothers Grimm with their stories so yeah. while it's got a few sort of more Englishisms etc added in it's essentially the Rumpelstiltskin story except he's called Tom Tiptop instead yeah okay and I'm sure that there are going, there are other versions as well that we we haven't named but we we don't have time to, there to are go through hundreds, each of them yeah <laughs> I just I've tried to pick out a few that are a bit different <laughs> yeah so Let's have a look at the themes, because this is where the conversation, I think, really gets, you know, very in-depth, very interesting for me, because there are several really important themes here um, that actually give us a look into the past, but also it just, it just, it really sort of cracks open the geode of this story um, and reveals the uh, the horror within it. <laughs> yeah, nice imagery. Um... 
Yeah, okay. Oh, I'm going to kick the ball off then with child sacrifice and the harvest. Yes. <laughs> because we know what a macabre little folklore fiend I am. Um, yes. Folk horror fiend, even. Uh, yeah, so women, no, not just women, humans in general started practicing agrarian pursuits, so agriculture and animal husbandry, around 10,000 years ago. And you can actually trace quite a few of our modern diseases and problems back to that time, because we were not mm. evolved for the sort of lifestyle that we then developed around that, or built on that. But leaving all that aside, um, we moved away from being hunter-gatherers and became farmers, essentially. And sort of 4,000 years ago, obviously this would have been, in fact, it's only very recently that a bad harvest doesn't completely ruin an yeah. entire group of people. In some parts of the world it still does. Um, so the whole idea of a harvest failing is a really, really terrifying one, to the point mm. where you might actually bet quite a lot against it not failing, or offer quite a lot in exchange for it not failing. Yeah. Uh, straw itself is not particularly helpful to us. I mean, it's useful for our animals, but it's not something we can actually eat. Um, but, you know, gold has, gold in fairy tales can mean several different things, and I'm going to get into some of the others in a minute, because one of mm. them at least, I'd be surprised if anyone realises, but one of the things <laughs> it can mean is harvest. It can yeah. literally mean corn, it can mean barley, it can mean grain. Uh, straw isn't useful, but if you can turn the useless bits of straw, the bits of the plant that we cannot possibly eat and digest, into actual grain, that's wealth. Yeah. So that whole idea of spinning straw into gold may simply be, can you make this unedible thing edible? And this is reflective of a time when harvest was so essential. Um, we know that sacrifice and harvest kind of go hand in hand and have done, even if we... For a long time. Exactly. <laughs> we don't know the exact practices because they've been largely lost in this time. But yeah. those things happened. Um, a really bad harvest might mean that women would miscarry because they're starving. It might mean that a child would be stillborn. It might mean that a child would die later on because women who are starving cannot produce breast milk. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So there's there's all those natural reasons. Then you get on to the slightly less palatable ones, like as we talked with with Hansel and Gretel, unwanted children who are extra mouths to feed. Actually, smothering them was considered a kindness. Yeah. And then we go a little step further, and it's like, well, what would you give for a good harvest? Anything? Would you give your firstborn child anything? Because if you're that hungry, you cannot reason as well. You're that yeah. desperate. It be able to live so yes a hypothetical child sometime in the future and then when the gods come to collect it's like well no you can't have my child it's not a hypothetical thing anymore it's here it's real it's alive it's in my arms yeah yeah absolutely so the fact that Rumpelstiltskin dates back about 4,000 years would strongly suggest that this was originally a rather dark harvest tale yeah I think there's also a symbolism a symbolism a bit of symbolism in there uh, in in the idea of the child representing the future yes which is that when you are that hungry the future doesn't matter the future you know you just want a resolution for today so it's yes we're going to eat what we have there but what we have in front of us because 
we cannot even think about the us of us tomorrow. They are, as you said, a theoretical. The future doesn't matter. The uh, the next generation doesn't matter because, you know, it, it's not even going to be here if we don't sort out today. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Which is one of the th- reasons I think actually it, it continues to resonate now because we don't necessarily have the same problems in, in sort of... Well, I should, well I should, to be honest, actually, that's less true now. Uh, but... Um, but we don't we're not faced with quite the same level of desperation for the most part now but we are still faced with not in terms of food but in terms of other things instead we are still faced with this idea of the greed of the moment of now but also the desperation of the moment now in and the debt being the next generation they're the ones who actually have to pay as it were yeah yeah definitely yeah Okay, moving on to the real meaning behind the name Rumpelstiltskin and the spinning of gold. <laughs> so Yes. <laughs> let's look at this one. This is really interesting. Um, the name Rumpelstiltskin in German literally means little rattle stilt. So a stilt being a post or pole that provided support for a structure. Um, consider it a house, you know, when you had houses that were sort of wattle and daube or, you know, yeah. sort of planks, etc. Um, so you have things like the poltergeist in German, which is where we get poltergeist from, which is a mischievous spirit, which literally means a rumble ghost, a ghost that makes noise and clatters and moves things around. And yeah. you also have a rumplegeist, which is a rattle ghost, which goes around knocking on planks and things and just generally <laughs> being annoying. So, um, yeah, altogether rumplestiltskin means little rattlestilt, um, which is already an odd name. But then you think about the fact that the name that the Brothers Grimm chose may well have been derived from this early set of children's games um, which were sort of collected by someone called Johann Fischart mm-hmm. uh, it's a loose adaptation of, of Rabelais' Gargantua and Pantagruel and it refers to an amusement for children a children's game called Rumpelstilt Order de Pop-Art um, obviously a pop-art or pop-art is, is a type of goblin um, right. and you were supposed to <laughs> one child would play the goblin and the others had to um, tap on the posts and things and the goblin had to track them down and then you know it's like like a really creepy hide and seek this is kind of what you'd expect from the Germans really it's sort of like a kick the can I guess as well yeah, but... <laughs> kind of, yeah. so Rumpelstiltskin so that sounds like it's like okay well that's all very interesting Jules why is this sinister well the sinister thing is this you have a young maiden who is locked up for three days in a row you have a man whose name is literally little rattlestilt so a piece Mm -hmm. of wood yeah who visits her nightly and spins gold with her and then Mm -hmm. turns up nine months later and demands a child which may well be his Okay, <laughs> when you put it like that. <laughs> to spin gold in fairy tale terms or to retrieve a golden object in fairy tale terms can mean to actually have sex with the woman in, co- in question. To make gold is literally a female orgasm in fairy tale folklore terms. Wow. Okay, yeah. and let's say that we're basing this off. Of, I mean, it's only fairly recently that it's kind of like, oh no, women don't like sex. Before that, it was all no, no, women are depraved sexual beasts who demand it, and you must keep them under control with enough sex, otherwise they will go looking for it elsewhere. That was the that was the belief. Um, yeah, 
you have to keep them in line by giving them just enough, not too much, but just enough, they need it, kind of thing. So the idea that um, uh, uh, she would accept a, a, a disturbing little goblin-type man and make gold with him but just because she was locked up would have, you know, sat very well with the audience who were kind of like, oh, yeah, well, women are like that, you know, we can't help ourselves. <laughs> And the whole idea that obviously if you want a woman to conceive um, under medieval and later sort of renaissance type terms was you, in order for a woman to conceive, she needs to orgasm. Yeah. So it was only much, much later that it was kind of like it doesn't really matter. Um, so yeah, the whole sort of spinning gold thing, well, it may have had nothing to do with straw whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. You learn something new every day. But I do still kind of find that this naive and easily manipulated young girl being locked up for three days and someone saying, I'll make all your problems better if we do this, quite sinister. Yeah, honestly, that is, that's still not exactly comforting, as you say. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah. We also have the, the gaining of masculine power she says in inverted commas you know and, and the power of the true name yeah this is an interesting one i mean if you think uh, three is which we'll get to in a minute three is really really important in the story um but you have three men you have miller who boasts at the beginning and starts off all her problems you have the mm -hmm. king who keeps threatening to kill her and compounds her problems and you have rumpelstiltskin himself who yeah. seems like a solution to the problem but really isn't old. is another problem <laughs> um, and she's just pushed from pillar to post all the way through this story she she doesn't have anything except you know, not even her wit, she's literally just hanging on by her fingernails. And I think this is why it's so important that in the earlier versions of the story, she goes and finds out the name herself. She doesn't send a servant. She doesn't mm. have a captain. In one, it's suggested that she seduces a captain of the guard and he goes and finds out for her. Yeah. Um, which, you know, annoys me for a whole batch of other reasons. No, she goes yeah. and finds out the name herself and it's this gaining of masculine knowledge, this gaming, this gaining of knowledge of male names and male ways of speaking in order to mm. make what she wants understood that finally breaks her free of this narrative of always being the one without any power. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um... I think we also then get the the obvious one, which is the lessons on hubris and boasting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, let's let's face it. This this story is just full of hubris and greed, and mm. and again boasting. So you've got the the Miller who boasts in the first place. Who makes a stupid boast? I mean, who who says, "Oh, my daughter can literally spin straw into gold." Yeah, and then you, but I mean, for, for all we know, it might have just been metaphor. It might have been a metaphor, but unfortunately, a very literal king took it very literally. <laughs> literally, yeah. <laughs> the king is greedy, and the king, in some ways, makes a boast of his own. Oh, if you can complete it on a third night, I'll marry you, which would have been unheard of for a miller's daughter, um, but then is forced to keep his word. And then finally, yeah. you've got Rumpelstiltskin, who, in true can-you-keep-a-secret fashion, cannot contain his glee over getting one over and taking a child away from someone 
Um, yeah. And has to make up a little song about his name, which is like serious hubris. Yeah. It's it's kind of funny because I, I, I always feel in some ways, whenever I encounter that story, that the reason he did that was because a part of him had to do it. Yeah, there always has to be that fairy tale loophole where there has to be a chance that, that he could fail and a chance, a very slim chance, that the heroine could win. Yeah. And that it was based on what she was capable of, which is that, you know, in that case, she went out into the into the forest on her own. She went seeking and therefore she was rewarded for that. Yeah. You know, there is this this idea of her literally taking power, taking control, when up until that point she has lacked it in every in every sense of the word. Um, and so, you know, this idea that she has been twice inconvenienced by men's greed and boasting, and once has actually been successful from it. She's learned to kind of game the system, as it were. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess that brings us on to the significance of three. Um, there are several numbers which are really important in fairy tale and folklore terms, but three is is a big one. Mm. Um, it's like you think of Goldilocks and the three bears. There's three bowls of porridge, three beds, etc., etc. Mm. Um, and again. There's, you know, someone going on a journey never meets just one person, they meet three people. Or they have three encounters along their way to woo the princess or whatever. Um, yeah. And it, it's the same thing. And I think it, part of it is that the repetition is important for setting up where the story is going to go because the point of fairy tales is for the listener to actually kind of guess where the story is going to end up before they get there. Um, because yeah, obviously, absolutely. Obviously, they're learning tales. Um, yes. But also, I think it's you know it, it's just kind of the structure as well, isn't it? It's allowing a certain number of twists and turns in the story. Um, the whole sort of cin- yeah. Cinderella, the original as we understand it. There's you know three balls that she goes to. So I mean, it turns up in all sorts of things. It, it does, yeah, absolutely. And it really does also kind of signify the beginning, middle and end. Yeah. <laughs> um, Plus, um, in occult terms, three is a powerful number. Um, in biblical yeah. terms, three is a powerful number, etc., etc. We just really like the number three. We like the number three. <laughs> Sesame Street style. Yes. Um, but we also have industry and laziness, you know, or rather industry versus laziness. I think as well is an important theme. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, there's an Irish version which I can't remember the name of now, where the whole point is it's very like the seven bits of bacon rind, where she's actually very lazy and doesn't want to do any of the work, so she uses mm. her wits in order to get other people to do the work for her, and make it look like she's doing the work. Um, yeah, one could argue that merely just doing the work itself would be less effort than using your wits to get other people and manipulating other people into doing the work for you yeah though i mean at the same time there's there's an element of the fact that which is that you know strength in in one way you know if, if you if you really cannot do something well having other strengths <laughs> or utilizing other skills or if you really don't want to do something yeah <laughs> 
I think because honestly, I think we've all been in situations where we've we don't want to do something, and so we've actually done something which is, in actuality, takes more effort, um, but is in <laughs> but is more fun. I guess. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But the whole industry yeah. side of things sort of comes more emphasis was put on it during the Victorian era when it was very sort of like, well no, you ought to be industrious and it's almost a throwback to Imperial Rome when it's like, no no no, a virtuous woman is a woman who's busy all the time. Yeah. Not absolutely who's lazy drinking wine. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's kind of interesting, though, because one of the things that, you know, comes with this, this sense of industry and laziness and stuff is also that whenever I I kind of read the story, I always saw it as a tale which is about the fact that there are people in the world who will take advantage of those who are desperate yeah. or those who are powerless. Um, and they may even pretend to be friends they may even come off like it's a kindness and it isn't um they are taking advantage of you um they are taking advantage of a system that's in place in order to get basically the most out of um out of the situation you know it's like creating a situation and then and then saving people from it yeah instead of you know actually looking at how to resolve the situation at, at large um and part of sort of what intrigued me about the story is the fact that actually there's also this sense of justice that comes with it, which is there are people in the world who will take advantage of you, um, but it is not hopeless. There are still ways to, um, you know, to relieve yourself and to play them at their own game. They will also have weak points which you can pull at, which I think is also another reason why the story is so prevailing today is that there is at the moment this great sense of you know large companies monopolizing on things politicians etc um and the sense of we're being played we're being forced to be part of a society um, and participate in a society which is geared against us um or is unfair but which we are still reliant upon um but actually we're not as powerless as we as we think we are. No, um, we seek not. It's like the the whole junk food industry thing. Almost yeah. all of us are caught up in the junk food cycle to some extent, and it's almost unavoidable because it's really difficult to get the information you need. Uh, but if yeah. you really seek the information, you can break that cycle and all the health issues that go with it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's not about saying, well, we can, and everything will be okay, but it, it is about sort of, yeah, regaining power. And it's 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 a great story in that there is this sense of hopefulness yeah. at the end, which is that actually maybe we can figure this out, as it were. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, our, our final main theme here is making bargains with the Fae, keeping promises and trapping yourself with your own words. Yes. <laughs> it's a I think every single character who actually turns up in that story kind of does at some point. Yes. <laughs> they really, really do. There is this emphasis on watch what you say, watch what you promise, etc. 
Yeah, everybody is forced to keep their promise in that story, apart from the miller's daughter, who manages to get out of her promise by, again, guessing Rumpelstiltskin's name. Yes. Um, there's also just this overall kind of sense of, of basically <laughs> a lot of men who talk loudly about stuff and then have to <laughs> fulfil the promises that they make, whereas the, the woman who is quiet and listens instead of just talking shit yes. actually gets by. <laughs> I think that's the other thing for, I'm sorry I'm, I'm diving back slightly on the whole real meaning of the name spinning gold thing but why the whole um, little rattle stilt um, and the fact that he may have been the father of the child thing kind of holds for me is that she's naming something that happened and yeah. that takes the power out of it and it's like there's two schools of thought in folklore um, and one is that to name an evil is to bring it closer, but also the other is to name an evil is to attain mastery over it and to be able to banish it, which obviously is what happens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, let's briefly look over some adaptations of this fairy tale, because obviously there have been quite a few of them. Yeah, and I forgot to write one of them down, which I am going to mention. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> I like the story. Um, yeah, so I honestly I haven't read this, but it does sound really charming, and it's called Duffy and the Devil, and it's a Cornish story by Margot Zemak, um, who okay. wrote it in 1973. Well, that's when it was published, and it it literally kind of follows the basic beats of Rumpelstiltskin, except it's not an imp; it, it is in fact a, a little devil that is causing all the problems. Right. Um, then there's Gilded by Marissa Meyer, which again, once more, I have to admit, I have not yet read. It's been on my TBR for absolutely ages. And I think Gilded actually does have some sort of, um, I've got a feeling it might have some queer representation in it as well. So it's a slightly different slant on the story. Hmm. So I really have okay. to get to that at some point. I have liked, uh, <laughs> I liked her science, her sci-fi-esque uh, fairy tales, so... So yes, yeah. I do enjoy her work. Yeah. I mean, next we also have Spinning Silver, which we've obviously talked about a fair amount in the past, but I think it probably is one of my favourite adaptations of Rumpelstiltskin. I think it's one of my favourite fairy tale retellings, actually. Naomi Novak mm. does do really good fairy tale retellings, but yeah um yeah really enjoyed that and it's such a great way that it it not only sort of tackles the main beats of the fairy tale and the idea that if you're vulnerable you can be taken advantage of but it looks at, mm. at discrepancies between power and wealth the power imbalance between that sort of fey creatures and humans and the yeah. fact that you can say something and you might be being flippant and guess what you might be called to account for those words so be very careful yes. what you say. <laughs> I kind of like the fact that she had the main character, Miriam, be the one who was making a flippant comment about being able to spin, you know, turn turn copper into gold kind of thing. Yeah. Rather than have her father boast about it and sort of drop her in the ship. Yeah. And again, I like the fact that she was she was using metaphor. Yeah. Kind of, you know, she was basically saying, you know, I can turn silver into gold. Um, 
unfortunately, and, 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 and she is, is technically. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, if you can do that, here you go. And she she knows it's bad, but she cannot refuse him because he's a fucking fae. So she does it. Yeah. And he's like, oh, okay, well, if you do this lot, then blah, blah, blah. And again, she can't refuse him. And then by the third one, she's like, I don't really want to marry you, but I can't not do what you've told me to do. And it's all clever yeah. banking. It's such a good book. I have to reread that. Yeah, and, and this, I think the thing that I particularly like about it is that there's an element where she she claims the power. Yeah. So it's not that he has given her that power. She actually can do it, but she's not doing it in the literal way that he wants. Um, or, but actually, he is, it, she is, because it doesn't really matter how she does it. And it goes from being a business thing to being a literal power because she has claimed it and because that's how the magic works i think it's brilliant yeah. i think it works very very well it's very very clever um the one i didn't write down is a curse as dark as gold by elizabeth c bunce which i think she's really underrated she's written some great books and i don't i don't hear anyone else talking about her but i really loved that one and it i think it I think it might have won a Newbury Medal or a Newbury Award or something like that. Anyway, um, it's kind of set in the late 1700s and a girl, you know, she's her father dies and leaves her in charge of a mill and mm -hmm. her two younger sisters. And yeah, she is absolutely spinning in terms of trying to keep this mill and this business going. And there's a family curse that's over them as well, which she only really discovers when she inherits the mill. Um, and the so-called prince who comes in is kind of like a fairly well-off merchant type person who has much ado to gain her trust enough for her to actually say, yes, I will marry you. And it does do the whole thing with the, I promised my firstborn child, but she was kind of, again, vulnerable and tricked into it. Mm. It's a really, really good take on the on the story. It does adhere to the main beats, but it, it's less set in a fantasy world than set in a historical time period. Yeah. Hmm. That's really interesting. Um. And the last one that we've got. <laughs> um, I'm going to mention this, and spoilers if you haven't seen The Tenth Kingdom, but this is just such a tiny part of it. <laughs> um, the Tenth Kingdom basically is a, pa a parallel fairy tale universe that's close to ours, and if you have the right mirrors, you can open doors between the two. And yeah. Virginia, who's always felt something's missing from her life, i.e., you know, her mother, but also a sense of magic, ends up with her somewhat deadbeat father um, wandering through this horrific fantasy fairy tale nightmare landscape. <laughs> <laughs> and they think they're just trying to get home and at one point she upsets some gypsies and they bewitch her so that her hair grows really long which doesn't sound too bad and she realises it's growing for like a mile behind her <laughs> and it's really Ooh. heavy and she's having to drag it everywhere and there she <laughs> she's kind of like I've got to get rid of this hair I've got to I, I can't carry on it's going it's going to literally kill her she's going to smother in this hair ultimately mm. and a little bird that she freed from the, from the gypsies um, sort of comes back and says okay well you did me a favour I'll do you a favour a mile from here there's a man in the woods chopping wood with a magic axe that will cut through your hair if nothing else will so they go and find this woodsman <laughs> 
And he's like, I'm not giving you my axe. And he said, I'll tell you what, if you can guess my real name by the time I finish this, this pile of wood, then I will give you my axe. But your friend has to stand surety. And he imprisons one of the companions, Wolf, in what is basically a stocks and says, I'm right. going to cut his head off if you can't, <laughs> you can't guess my real name. And uh, of course, the father's like, oh, I've got this. This is fine. And he says, Rumpelstiltskin. And the, and the axe was like, no, carries on chopping wood. And it's like, no, you don't think you heard me. Rumpelstiltskin. Like, no, that's not my <laughs> name. And he's like, oh, fuck. <laughs> fuck, it's a different name. And it goes through every name you can think of, including all of the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> it's like John, Paul, Ringo, and Wolf is there going, Ringo? Who the fuck is called Ringo? <laughs> and finally, the little. What is his name in the end? <laughs> ah, I'm just about to tell you. Finally, and, and the father's like, come on, you've got to give us a clue. How is this fair? And he's like, how is it any fun to like trick people like this and then kill them? And the woodsman's like, it's a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> oh, great, you're a psychopath. It's like, look, my. <laughs> my name is written in the band of my hat which is on that log and he goes towards it and uh, obviously holds holds the axe out and says my hearing's perfect you're not going to get to that hat but the little bird comes back reads the inside of the hat and goes and whispers it in the father's ear and mm -hmm. he's like really it's that and he says Susan <laughs> <laughs> and the woodsman has to hand over his axe and the father's like, I think I can see where a lot of your problems have come from. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, not Rumpelstiltskin retelling, but obviously taking that, you know, both trickery and um, redemption yeah. thing. That's, that's really cool. I do like that. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I was going to ask what sort of our favourite adaptation is, but I, th I think we've actually already covered it. Yeah. Um, which is just, it's Spinning Silver. Um, I think that is probably my favourite adaptation. Yeah, um, I think it's mine. I do like A Curse as Dark as Gold as well, but Spinning Silver is brilliant. Yeah, it really, really is. I mean, I've, but, I mean I've, I've got to ask, you know, um, do you think you'd ever do a version of it? Um, weirdly, I was thinking this earlier and I thought I touched almost every other main fairy tale when I wrote Nightmare Trail, but I didn't come yeah. up with still skin. It just didn't come Yeah, up. that was one thing I was like, did, did, no, you didn't. You didn't actually do Rumpelstiltskin. I, I so <laughs> you never know. Maybe I will include that as a horrific extra because <laughs> I genuinely think, I mean, other people have made horror films out of this story and I really think you could make a a really horrific side story out of this so maybe I will devote myself to that <laughs> yes <laughs> oh brilliant well we are at the end of our episode guys um, but obviously before we go it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week and Jules I believe that you've got one for us yes I read a really lovely kind of Beauty and the Beast retelling, but it's not just Beauty and the Beast retelling, uh, called Bitterthorn by Kat Dunn. And mm -hmm. I really recommend it. It's a very quiet fantasy story. So if you're looking for lots of like pyrotechnics and stuff, then you're not going to find it here. Um, <laughs> but it, it really looks at how loneliness and love are kind of woven together and mm. how you can 
how you can change one in, into the other kind of thing. So it follows, it's sort of set early 1800s in Germany in a place called Blumwald, um, which is obviously made up, I think, but everything else, it, men it mentions sort of 19th century literature and stuff. So it, it's obviously set in history. Uh, Blumwald mm. is under a curse. Every 50 years, the witch comes out of the woods and demands a companion. And then she takes that companion with her back to her castle and they don't hear from yeah. her again. Um, but this has been happening for 400 years and, you know, 50 years previously, before the story begins, obviously she took a young man named Edgar and they are always men that she takes with her. Um, and as long as as long as they deliver her a companion, nothing really goes wrong in Blumfeld. But when they've tried to resist her in the past, things have started to go very badly wrong. People die, etc. Um, the main character of the story is a young woman called Mina. And Mina is technically a princess, but she just doesn't fit in. She's the daughter of a duke, not really a princess. Mm. She just doesn't fit in. She's interested in being outdoors, um, but not in a not-like-the-other-girls way. She just doesn't seem to relate to other people very well because she doesn't know what they want from her. And, of course, what they want is for her to want all the same things that they want. Um, but she can't because she's not that person. She likes being outside. She's interested in things. She's interested in plants and rocks and things like that, all stuff which aren't really young lady appropriate. And uh, she tries, she really tries to wear dresses that, that are appropriate to her station and stuff, but she's well aware that, you know, putting a beautiful dress on an ugly woman doesn't do anything for the woman, really, or at least that's her opinion. And yeah. her father, I mean, her, her mother sort of had, gave birth to her and then fell into a very deep depression, it sounds like. And she only mm. sort of emerged from that depression over Mina's life over the next six, seven years, periodically. And then her mother died. And her father remarried, and there was two stepsisters as well. And her stepmother wasn't cruel to her, but just basically erased her. So she was least thought of. She was kind of pushed to the back all the time. She wasn't treated cruelly or anything. She was just ignored. So it was a very specific type of neglect. And because of this, Mina has spent her entire life sort of being hungry for love because no one's really paid any attention to her, including her own father. So that's where you mm. start off the story. And there's a big, there's a big, like, gathering ball type happening at the Ducal Palace. And, you know, she's been told she has to attend. And when she arrives, her stepmother has forgotten to set a place for her at the table. So she's being sent away. So she's feeling absolutely rejected once again. Oh. At which point, the witch turns up and demands a companion. And her father hasn't done anything about it. And Mina, feeling really rejected and like she's not wanted anywhere, says, volunteers for the job. And her father, okay. her father, even though her father knows exactly what that means, lets her go. Um, so she goes and lives with the witch in her castle, and the witch also ignores her and tells her to go away, and not, she doesn't want anything to do with her. And the whole book Aww. then sort of follows Mina, sort of desperately trying to get under the witch's guard and forcing her to take her company and to get to know her, um, until they kind of fall in love with each other. And then you find out the real reason Mina's there. And that's that's, <laughs> that's where I'm going to stop. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's classically gothic. 
and it's a, a really great fairy tale and it's lovely but also it's it's got bits of bluebeard in and bits of Norse mythology about spinning for example mm-hmm. and yeah lots of other bits and pieces in there as well it's a really great queer fairy tale highly recommend it it's also a great audiobook so if you listen to uprooted as an audiobook katie sobe who was the narrator of that book also narrates this one okay yeah that's that's definitely a uh, <laughs> a good recommendation then <laughs> oh okay that sounds really interesting i'm i'm probably gonna have to get my hands on that yeah I think you'd like it. <laughs> okay. Just remind remind everyone what it's called. It's called Bitterthorn by Cat Bitterthorn. Okay. And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah. Thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs>